Can you hear me okay? Yeah. Well, my dad was, among other things, a church historian. He uh, wrote his master's thesis on the history of churches of Christ in St. Louis, where he was living at the time that he wrote it. And on a number of occasions, I heard him relate a story that he found in his research about a prominent church in St. Louis, Church of Christ in St. Louis, that was having a major dispute uh, because apparently they had a beautiful organ and some of the members of the congregation wanted to use this organ in their worship and the others did not. And it became quite a contentious dispute to the point that on one Sunday one of the groups came to the church building and there was a padlock on the door that had been placed there by the other group. And the message, of course, was pretty clear. We're tired of this discussion. You're not welcome here anymore. And that says it. Except that it didn't. Because the group that got locked out went and got their own padlock. And they put it on the door. And since nobody had keys to both catalogs, nobody could get into the building. So what were they supposed to do? Well, what they did do was sue each other. They went to court. And they presented their case to the, to the uh, judge. He listened carefully to what they had to say. And then when, was, when they were all done, he said something like this. You people are really something. You claim to be Christians, but here you are fighting over a piece of property, and you come to an old sinner like me to resolve your dispute. You really have to be ashamed of yourselves. Amen. They should have been ashamed of yourselves. But it goes to show how, if we are not careful, and if we don't include God in our affection, it's pretty easy for us to allow our differences. To grow into major skill I think maybe my favorite of all of Paul's letters is the one he wrote to the Philippians. It has a lot of great sound bites in it. You know, for me to live as Christ and to die as King. Our citizenship is in heaven, he says. I want to know Christ and the power of his resurrection. I mean, these are the kinds of things you know that we, we put onto it. And the pictures we frame them, we put them on the walls of the houses. But there was much more than that. Philippians is a non-spiral book, but it's also a study in contradictions. Because Paul, who is writing this letter, is under house arrest. And he is, has every right to be anxious and depressed and concerned, and yet, the letter is filled with joy. It's clear throughout the letter just how much Paul loves these officials, these, uh, these uh, Philippians. And, and most scholars would suggest that one of the reasons that he's writing this letter is because of something the Philippians have done for him. They saw that he was under house arrest and he needed to have material goods to take care of himself. And so they made, they made a collection. And they were not a wealthy group, but they reached deep into their pockets and they sent him a gift when he was in prison and he's writing to thank 
That's not the only reason, apparently, Paul writes this letter. Apparently, this is a church that was also dealing with some pretty significant comments. As you read the letter, you'll see a number of subtle references to this. Particularly if you're looking for it. For example, in chapter 1, verses 26 and 27, um, he, he tells them to stand firm in one spirit, contending as one man for the gospel. In chapter 2, he warns them not to act out of selfish ambition. And later on in that same chapter, he warns them not to grumble or complain. But it wasn't until chapter 4 that Paul really puts the issue on the table. Because in verses 2 and 3, he says, I plead with Eodia and I plead with sympathy to agree in the Lord. And I ask you, my true companion, the loyal Yoko, help these women as they have intended at my side in the cause of the gospel, along with Clement and the rest of my co workers, whose names are in the book of life. Paul uses some really strong language here. One time I heard a scholar that I really respected say, if Paul uses the word that he uses here for plead, it's the word parakalo, if he uses that word, you probably have a pretty good idea about why he's writing this letter. And Paul uses it here not once, but twice. He is begging Euodia and Sisyphe to find some common ground in the world. Why? Why is this little verse in the midst of all in this, this letter with all these great sound bites? Why is this little verse so important? Well, there's a lot we don't This is the only place in Scripture where we find Euodia and Sinti, so we really don't know anything about them. We don't know what they were fighting about. And we don't know if this true companion or loyal yoke fellow that he talks about who, who, is, who he asks to intervene between the two of them. I kind of have a picture of what's going on. Maybe it's accurate, maybe it's not. But the picture that I have is something like this. You have these two influential sisters in this congregation. And they are having a major fight. And when they come into the assembly together, they don't look at each other, they don't talk to each other, and they sit as far as, as they can from each other. And people begin to notice. Now, I don't know what they're saying about the other ones to other people, but pretty soon you have a group of people that are lining up with Euodia, and you have a group of people that are lining up with Syntyche, and you have a group of people who are kind of uncomfortably in the middle, trying to not take sides with either one. This is a conflict that's bubbling, it's about to boil over, and when it does, people are going to get burned. It's no wonder Paul is writing this so when you read Philippians through this lens, you can begin to see a number of things that Paul says to address his concern. I want to highlight this this morning, but before I do, I want to stop here and say something to us as a congregation. I just want to tell you how much I appreciate the spirit and the attitude I see in this church. We've been here just a little bit more. And, uh, and, and, you know, we've had certainly rough patches over those times. We've had bumps in the road, as you would expect from any family of Jews. But I've never seen the kind of dynamic or kind of spirit that I'm imagining going on here in this church of Philippi. 
And, and I think that's really the commitment. And, and before you think it's because we're so smart, and because we're just really good folks, I, I, I want to remind us that I think the reason this is happening is because God's working. Amen. God's at work, and we're trying to figure out how we can work with it. <laughs> so let's start with the, the first of these passages I'm going to turn to. And it's Philippians chapter 1, verses 9 and 12. And, and this is Paul's prayer for the Philippians, and it reads this way. This is my prayer, that your love may abound more and more in knowledge and depth of insight, so that you may be able to serve what is best and may be pure and blameless from the day of Christ, filled with the fruit of righteousness that comes through Jesus Christ, to the glory and praise of God. This is a prayer for wisdom. Paul is praying that the Philippians will have increased knowledge and wisdom and discernment so that in the end, they make decisions that bring honor to God. But there's another element here that really is essential to this wisdom. Because he says, he prays that their love may come back over and over. And when I read this, I really struggled with this. What does this mean? What do love and wisdom have to do with each other? Years ago, I was uh, I was part of a team building experience, and uh, as part of this, we did it was a low ropes course. And part one of the exercises that we did was there was a, there was a cable strung about a foot off the ground between several different trees, and the job that we had was to get our team from the start to the end. Okay, and, and, and so I took a look at that cable and I thought, you know, how bad I can do this? And before I knew what I was doing, I hopped up in that cable and it skittered over to one tree and then to another tree, then to another tree, and then it was done. And I was really proud of myself for having done that. And then I looked back and started. And, and there were all my teams. You know, I, I had just missed the point of all exercise. Because <laughs> all I knew was to get everybody over there, and I didn't do it, but I hadn't helped anybody else anybody else do that. And so I, I think the reason Paul underscores the importance of love in our decision making is that he recognizes that most of our decisions are made in a relational context. There are few decisions we make that do not have an impact on others. A decision you make about what you're going to do tonight has an impact on other people in your family. Just ask any parent whose teenager decides you're going to stay out for a couple of extra hours without telling you anyone. Does that have an effect on anybody else in the family? Oh, yes. Decision I make about what to do at work. Decision I make about, about something that's, that's related to church. All of those are terrifically uh, important experiences. And so Paul, when Paul prays that love will guide our processes of discernment, he's urging us to consider how the decisions we make individually will affect one another. And that's why it's so important that we understand each other. Especially when we do not agree. Most conflicts stem from misunderstandings Somebody does something that we don't agree with, and we construct a story about why they did it, 
and oftentimes it's a story that assumes the worst. It's a good example of this in Judges chapter 22. It's a story there about, about the Israelites. You know, God has given them the promised land, and they have come into the promised land, and, uh, and they were working together with the 12 tribes, and then, and then as they conquered the promised land, each tribe would get their own plot of land. Well, three of the tribes, Reuben, Gad, Manasseh, had decided that they wanted to take their lands east of the Jordan River before they actually crossed into what most considered the promised land. And everybody was fine with that, as long as the brothers on the east side of the Jordan would help the brothers on the west side conquer their territories, which they did. And so when they were done, when all the conquering was done, the folks from Reuben, Gad, and Manasseh went back home to where they were on the east side of the Jordan. And the first thing they did was to construct a huge altar right on the Jordan River. And the brothers on the west side saw this altar. And they said, what are they doing? Because they assumed that they were constructing an altar to make sacrifices to foreign gods. And they, and they said, how stupid can they be? God has just given us this land. And, and now they're going to start offering sacrifices to foreign gods? How can this be? And they were so upset and they were so angry that they formed armies so they would attack their brothers on the east side of the Jordan. But somebody had the sense to say, you know, maybe we should go ask them about this whole thing. So they sent a delegation. And this delegation was asking them, well, what's, what's this altar for? Why are you constructing an altar to sacrifice, make sacrifices to foreign gods? And they said, what? This altar has nothing to do with foreign gods. This is an altar of remembrance. Because we don't want you on the west side of the Jordan to forget that we on the east side of the Jordan also serve God. And this altar is to be a witness between us. All 12 tribes, those on the east and those on the west side of the Jordan, that we are one people who are devoted to serving the one God. And when the delegation heard this, they said, oh, oh, that's great. So they went back to their group, all the armies dispersed, and they went back home. They almost went to war, all over a misunderstanding. The 12 tribes were in a relationship just as we are. And we, when we make an understanding understand one another in love, we'll be able to avert showdowns just like they're able to do. When we assume the best in other people, when we remember that those who see things differently than we do are people that we love, it helps us make better decisions. It reminds me a little bit about what Bruce was talking about in this class uh, a couple weeks ago. He was talking about you know, Corinthians chapter, 1 Corinthians chapter 14, and he, he talks about the structure of the of section between 11 and 14 where there's a lot of disputes over worship, what they're doing with their worship time together, and then right in the middle of it is, is 1 Corinthians chapter 13, perhaps the most loved chapter in the whole Bible. You know, this magnificent chapter of love. And Bruce's point was, that's not there by accident. Paul puts that letter, puts that chapter right in the middle of his whole discussion to remind them that no matter what differences you have, what governs everything is love. Amen. So, may our love 
abound more and more in knowledge and ethical insight so that we may be able to discern what's best. Philippians chapter 2, verses 1 through 4. Therefore, if you have any encouragement from being united to Christ, if any comfort from his love, if any common sharing in the Spirit, if any tenderness and compassion, then make my joy complete by being like minded, <laughs> having the same love, being one in spirit and one mind. Do nothing out of selfish ambition or name conceit, but in humility, value others above yourselves, not looking to your own interests, but each of you to the interests of others. In my first class in graduate school, maybe my first day in graduate school, I was introduced to something called exchange theory. Exchange theory basically says that every decision we make is based upon our own self-interest. What determines my actions are based on what I think is best for me. And, and, and my first reaction to exchange theory was revulsion. It was like, that is so selfish. You know, that, that, is, that, that, that just can't be right. That I would make all my decisions based upon my own self-interest. But the more I thought about exchange theory, the more I recognized when I thought about the decisions I made in my life, I thought, how many of them have I made based upon what I thought was best for me? Decisions about places that I live, decisions about my education, decisions about the kind of work that I've done, decisions about what I made. All of them were really done for me, right? Because I thought, in the long run, these are the ones who were going to, these were the decisions that were going to make me the happiest. So, before you think about beating myself up and down, let me just say, suggest to you <coughs> that you do the same thing. Yeah. You know? It's a natural human inclination for self-interest. And Jesus, in his teachings, this is what makes his teachings so bad, he takes this natural inclination that we have for self-interest and he turns it on his head. He says things like, walk the other mile, turn the other cheek, or he will be first, and he will be last first. <clears throat> so Philippians 2, that's what Paul is doing. He's reminding them of the teachings of Jesus. He, he kind of gently slides into it at first. By reminding them of their higher call to Christ. He says, if you have any encouragement from being united with Christ, if any help from his life. And then, and then he calls in a few chips of his own. He says, um, he urges them to make my joy complete, Paul's joy complete, by being like-minded, having the same love, being one in spirit and mind. But then he drops them off. In the midst of this conflict-riddled group, each of whom were busy defending themselves, he says, do nothing out of selfish ambition, but in humility, value others above yourselves. Look not only to your own interests, but also to the interests of others. There would exchange theory. How do you What would happen if we really did this? If when we make a decision, we ask ourselves, I wonder how others in the group would feel about 
things. I wonder what's best for, for somebody else. Just think about what a different world would be if all of us, first of all, ask, what's best for you instead of what's best for me? I suspect if we did this, we would see more compromises. Compromise has now become a negative word. Because it's suggesting that I'm giving up on something in terms of my own values, in terms of my own beliefs. And I, I want to be clear here. I, I think as a follower of Jesus, there are sometimes there are times when I cannot compromise. I need to hold on to my standards because to do otherwise would be to forsake Jesus. But there are a lot of circumstances where this is not the case. And sometimes I wonder how it would be different if the first thing I did was when I was looking at an issue was to try to look at it through your eyes. And you did the same with me. If I tried to make a decision based upon what was in your best interest, not mine, then you did the same with me. I think if both of us were doing this, it would be more likely we would be finding some common ground in the middle of our different views. If you're looking out for what's best for me, and I'm looking out for what's best for you, neither of us is likely to get exactly what we want, but we might, in the words of the Rolling Stones, we might just get what we need. Regardless of what anyone else is, as disciples of Jesus were called to follow his example. And it is nowhere more beautifully illustrated then in the verses that follow, verses 5 through 11. He says, In your relationships with one another, have the same mindset as Jesus Christ, who, being the very nature of God, did not have the quality of God something to be used to his own advantage or something to be grasped or held on to at all costs. Rather, he made himself nothing by taking the very nature of a servant, being made in human likeness. And being found in appearance as a man who humbled himself, he became, by becoming obedient to death, even death on the cross. Therefore, God exalted him to the highest place and gave him the name that is above every name, that in the name of Jesus every knee should bow in heaven and on earth and under the earth, and every tongue confess that Jesus Christ is the Lord to the glory of God the Father. Yes. We need to be like Jesus. And that means we're called to put the interests of others before our own. And then let God take the The last one that I'd like to talk about is Philippians chapter 4. Verses 4-7. Paul says, Rejoice in the Lord always. And I'll say it again. Rejoice. Let your gentleness be evident to all. The Lord is near. Do not be anxious about anything, but in every situation, by prayer and petition of thanksgiving, present your requests to God. And the peace of God, which transcends all understanding, will guard your hearts and your minds in Christ Jesus. If anyone has a right to be in a bad mood, He's under house arrest for his work for spreading the gospel. 
On top of this, there are people out spreading rumors, apparently making worse for And yet, this letter is shot through with expressions of joy. No less than 13 times in this little four-chapter letter does Paul use the word rejoice or joy. In fact, he believes in it so much that in this particular verse he uses it twice. Rejoice in the Lord always. And just in case you're missing it, I'll say it again. Rejoice. So why does he place such an emphasis on joy? When he's writing to a church that's beset with conflict. Maybe it's because he knows that the thief of joy is in their midst. In verse 6, he urges them, do not be anxious about anything. Anxiety robs us of joy. Anxiety occurs when we don't know what the future is going to be. So we worry that the worst may happen. It's a natural human response. A year or so ago, a year and a half ago, I had an extra some of you may remember. And I was I was anxious going into that surgery. It's, you know, despite the fact that I was, I was told, you know, the success rate for this is high, and, you know, all those sorts of things, I still was going to end up surgery because I thought, no, the worst could happen. Right? I could end up paralyzed. I could end up dead. Well, I didn't. I'm here. You know, everything turned out fine. But my anxiety was related to the unknown. The what if scenarios that played in my head. And I imagine there were a fair number of what if scenarios going on in this church of Philip. What if Euodia or Pacific for that matter get in their way? What if we can't resolve this issue? What if we end up splitting because of this issue? What if? What if? What if? As our anxiety wraps up, we usually try to take control of the situation. And if you are doing that, and I am doing that, and we are on different pages, we are on a collision course. So Paul's response is to say, there's no value in what is. There's no reason to be anxious. True. It's true. The future is uncertain. But God is not. And He is near. And so turn it over to Him. Tell Him about your concerns. Let Him know what you want. And then let it go. Only God controls the future. And when we trust Him, then only then will we really know peace. Paul puts a funny verse about this. We find a great example of this in chapter 1 of In chapter 1, he's contemplating what his imprisonment will result in. And there's a good possibility that he's going to be executed, that he's going to die for his defense of the gospel. But it's also possible that he'll be free. And so he's sharing with the Philippians in chapter 1 his internal faith about which of these choices is better. You know, because he says, if, if, if I live, I'll, I'll continue, I'll get to serve you. If I die, I'll live with you with Christ. I'm not sure which one's better. I'm kind of leading, leading for the dying one. But ultimately, this is a win-win situation. To live is Christ, to die is gain. 
And he says, you know, it's all in God's hands, and there's no bad choices. I don't know about you, but this is kind of mind-blowing. I mean, I, I, I'm not there yet. I aspire to be there, but I'm, I'm, not, I'm not there yet. And, 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 and Paul, how can he say something like this? How can he say, you know, I live, I die, it's all about it's because he stopped worrying about outcomes he cannot control. And he's learned to trust that God can handle We live in a world where anxiety is an epidemic of The number of people on anti-anxiety medications is at an all-time high. I live my career in mental health, and I don't think I've ever seen a time when anxiety is as high as it is now. I work on a college campus. It's, it's, it's there, always. The thousand that say, just trust God, is an overly simplistic response to It's complex. There's a lot of anxiety. There's a lot of factors that go into it. So saying, just trust God and it'll go away, this is not an adequate response. I right. But I also want to say that Paul is not saying only here, trust God. He's saying more. He's urging us to reflect on those things that are good in our lives. Because they outweigh those things that cause us sore. He tells the Philippians, whatever is true, whatever is noble, whatever is right, Whatever is pure, whatever is lovely, whatever is admirable, if anything is excellent or praiseworthy, think about such things, and the God of peace will be with you. We have so much to rejoice in. Most of all, we have a God who loves us and cares for us. So regardless of all the what gifts in our future, He will always be there, and that alone is possible to us. So, how do we deal with our differences? It's not an easy answer for this. There's no magic bullet. But I think if we listen to what Paul is saying, if we love and serve one another, and it will rejoice because we remember that God loves us and He's bigger than all our differences. What we may find is that they're not as big as they seem. Let's pray together. Holy God, we are your sons. We want to do what you want us to do. We know that we disagree. We have different ideas about the direction we should go. And, and we're all trying to seek you. And so we ask for your wisdom. We ask for your help in helping us to love. We ask for your insight. We ask for your discernment. 
legal instruments in this room as we seek to address the things in this congregation, as we seek to talk about other differences in We ask God that you will help us have the same spirit as Jesus, who put others in front of himself. And help us, God. Help us always to rejoice in Because whatever else happens in our lives, you you are you. And no matter what else happens to us, you promise to be.